Welcome to a podcast on fire on Young and Dangerous 4 and Portland Street Blues. A total of three profitable installments of the Young and Dangerous series came out in 1996 alone, but the team waited until the next year, until it felt like a good timing, to unveil the fourth adventure in the saga involving the Hong Hing boys. And this is uh, what we're here to review first, the movie Young and Dangerous 4, which should have had the subtitles We Like Money. And by now, a few satires of the uh, booming uh, genre had trickled into the marketplace, uh, whether it involved young and dangerous characters or not. But by 1998, an award-winning movie based on the introduction of a new character in Young and Dangerous 4 graced uh, the marketplace. So Sandra M enters the fray as the lesbian boss, Sister 13, and gets her own origin story in the form of Portland Street Blues. And my name is Kennedy, and with me to extend our Young and Dangerous coverage, whether we complete it or not, I said, like, after the first episode, no more! And then, I might as well do two, and now we're up to four, and by this point, still only five or six of the prequel left, so we might as well, but we're doing a spin-off at the same time. But with me to uh, to uh, uh, enhance this coverage and connect the two movies uh, that, that we've chosen for this episode is Paul Fox of the East Green West Green podcast. That's right, Ken. We're slowly pushing you towards uh, watching the Golden Job. So, uh, is it is it canon, or <laughs> it's just a cast reunion, right? Yeah, just a cast reunion. I wouldn't sure. mind. I, I like those guys in their in their golden years, which is uh, which is where they are right now, and they're, they're all friends, seemingly. You know, did did they get uh, Jerry Lamb and Jason Chu and Michael Tse in the Golden Job as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much. Everybody but one, the, I think the character who plays Banana, all the actors are there, including including one of the actors who comes at, not in the, not in this entry, but I think in, in uh, Young and Dangerous 5, okay. um, has a pretty big role too. So, yeah, it's good to see them. It's a, it's a nice reunion and the nostalgia kicks in and the stars are there. So, And, and some uh, cheeky callbacks to the series that they're not in. in yeah. With, <laughs> Like, uh, what, what do you call? I'm Hong. What do you call? Hing. Hmm. That reminds me of something. Da, 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 da. You know, it, it didn't seem like this brooding heist movie. So uh, I bet they allowed themselves to have a little bit of fun. Uh, I don't know if that is that is even out in, in the West. I mean, it had US distribution, but I don't remember if it ever came to uh, digital and Blu-ray, but... Surely it must have by this point, but 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 if not in the US, then then in Hong Kong. So, the Golden Job should be should be out there. Because you you, uh, you saw it on the big screen right uh, during the well go tour of duty. Yes, yes, I did. Uh, very cool. Well, we are gonna get this uh, show on the road. As I said, we might conclude uh, the Young and Dangerous coverage eventually, but we we talked about expanding it via the spin-offs because the spin-offs represent something quite fascinating. Both it holds quality i i knew that already i i saw portland street blues way before i saw any young and dangerous movie and as, as soon as i saw the young and dangerous movies i realized that portland street blues at the very least is uh, is an unexpected quality uh um, better quality but um it's it, it draws me in this notion of uh, looking at the spin-offs because i'm fascinated how the makers thought whether makers had more than 10 bucks to make said spin-off movies or, or not, uh, or whether it involved the original makers of uh, Young and Dangerous. Because uh, we, we've had comedic ones like Once Upon a Time in Tri-Society, Portland Street Blues is a drama, Too Many Ways 
to be number one wasn't set in this universe, but he clearly set out to depict Triads as uh, kind of bumbling fools. And, uh, you know, it's my loose theory, Paul, that uh, some filmmakers wanted to respond to this booming genre by poking a little at it. Uh, did you ever think of that in terms of how Johnny Toe or any other filmmaker sort of saw this and what choices they made? Uh, did that ever sort of interest you in terms of uh, when they went for the sort of satire of it all yeah i mean i really enjoy things like that i think we've talked before too about is there's a a great sequence in is it uh, boys are easy where they um you know is it the triad olympics that are in that one or, yes, sir. yeah um which i think is great and um you know some of the titles that you mentioned before and it's interesting too and i think we touched on this point when we talked about the first film how the idea of, you know, triads and triad life, there's there's kind of a continuous thread that runs through these that you can push forward into even more modern films like Election and things, even though tonally they become different and the, the aspects of um, triad life become a little bit different because politics have changed and times have changed. But also if you go backward from these films, you get back into the 80s with films like uh, you know, the killer or triads, the inside story or, or stuff, even there too, um, you know, they're, they're a bit tonally different and the, the depictions are different and sort of the heroism is different. Um, and so you have, you know, sort of this nice transitional shift across the decades. If you enjoy this genre and you keep up with this genre and to be sure, I mean, the, the hung Hing boys have some entertainment value, but it's not my favorite when, if, when, I, when it comes to thinking about, you know, triad genre films. But they do sort of definitely represent the 90s, um, as it were, in, in that very specific period and how the genre was seen by kind of a new generation of um, moviegoers. I suppose that's why I get interested after telling myself that I should not be interested anymore. To, to pursue the rest of the series and combine it with work because it, it is a sort of cultural touchstone, cultural icons, at least commercially, if you if you want to use the term icon. And I don't mind that because uh, I get to absorb the knowledge of genre and marketplace and impact, even if the movies are not necessarily these, uh, these great, cool triad movies um, and so in the end because uh, I don't believe in bearing a grudge against uh, this series but uh, but in the end I think I've started to gain an appreciation for what they were and what they represented and that somehow grows stronger than the actual personal uh, verdict of the films um, I mean they have their bright spots but uh, they're, they're they're not quality films necessarily but i still i don't mind having it and even revisiting it uh, to experience uh, the, the genre impact the market impact and uh, even more so because of how the spin-offs uh, did critically uh, especially you would think that the spin-offs would not stand a chance and would be in the shadow of Young and Dangerous, but uh, here comes Portland Street Blues, and uh, uh, no awards, as far as I know, for the legendary tie, legendary Taipei, but uh, it's out there, and perhaps part of our coverage to uh, to cover the grand origin story of the nose-picking, long-haired 
type thing. I hope to God he had his long hair in that spin-off and did not have the short haircut like in Young and Dangerous 4. Or what, do, do you remember Anthony's look, per se? Yeah, it was long-ish. It doesn't seem to... I don't recall it being quite as long, but it wasn't short. Requisite. Damn it. Requisite. <laughs> hair makes the character. Anyway, we'll get into it. Uh, some brief contact information uh, before we get uh, going. This is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network and the uh, back catalog of our Young and Dangerous reviews, for instance, uh, that all resides in the Podcast on Fire uh, back catalog that you'll find on our site, podcastonfire.com, along with all our other shows on Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, we talk sleazy movies, we put up bonus episodes every now and again, and all that uh, good stuff, and focus on uh, directors as well. We've just uh, uh, restarted our uh, director's series, and uh, at the time of recording, we've uh, done two shows on the combined director, director series of... Uh, Mabel Chung and Alex Law, because there are filmmaking partners and partners in life as well. So uh, that's uh, th- that made sense to combine the directors of An Autumn's Tale and Now You See Love, Now You Don't in the same in the same series. That, that makes me that makes me happy. And Echoes of the Rainbow, yes, he did Echoes of the Rainbow. But Alex Law, man, Paul, when it comes to Al- OG Alex Law stuff, Now You See Love, Now You Don't. That's where I turn. To a 1992 giant fat movie that was on VCD only up until like a few months ago. Now, now it's on Blu-ray. Uh, but at uh, any rate, uh, join us on social media. Click the various button at the top of our buttons at the top of our website. Uh, go into Facebook. When you reach Facebook, join us over in our discussion group for show updates and uh, discussions of a variety of things. We try to um, uh, get the community going and have light-hearted discussions of. Uh, uh, favorite movies, first watch experiences of key movies and uh, what have you, and polls. Polls are fun. You can click stuff on that uh, discussion group, including in the polls. So we try to make it as lively as we can. Follow us over at Twitter. Our handle is Podcast on Fire. I write and review uh, Taiwanese movies and Hong Kong movies over at SoGoodReviews.com. I put up uh, video reviews on SleazyKVideo.com and I tweet over on Twitter as well, and uh, my handle is at so good reviews. Uh, Paul Fox, uh, I will. Uh, I hope it doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I will never stop mentioning the fact that even though East Screen West Screen at uh, time is not recording regularly, you still have a mighty archive of um, fine reviews of uh, new uh, Hong Kong movies, new mainland Chinese movies, uh, combined with the West and all of that. So I will never stop mentioning it because I'm a great fan of uh, the show uh, whether there, there will be new shows or not or uh, whether i'll go back in the archives so uh, therefore i'm gonna force you to plug it too <laughs> well thank you yes the show was uh, east screen west screen and you can find it over at uh, concast.com we are still on uh, hiatus officially i guess you might say um because of life getting in the way of certain things uh hope to return at some point but uh you know other stuff has to get settled before we can do that but uh, until then you've got the archives to listen to and of course you've got great new shows coming out here on the podcast on fire network yeah uh, including a third show on a um uh, hardcore pornographic movie we're gonna we reviewed it twice already now we're gonna do it a third time that's how we work on this show we, we did a little show uh episode on uh, a little sleazy movie with hardcore pornography called mindfuck and we redid that episode because that was funny and guess what we're gonna go do next poll we're gonna do a commentary on it 
Yeah, because third time's a charm, right? Yeah, exactly. We, we, we're going to talk to the movie and react to uh, uh, to ugly sights in question because it's not it's not sexy, it's not sexy at all. So there's going to be a lot of oh, oh no 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 don't put it there don't put it there make a movie instead have some hopping vampires instead combined with this stuff come on anyway let's take a musical break and listen to the relevant. Uh, uh, cool and hip music from Young and Dangerous 4 and uh, after the break uh, we're going to come back to review the fourth installment from uh, 1997 so sit tight and we'll be right back Welcome back in the first review of this episode is Young and Dangerous 4 from 1997 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows. Here we go again. Triad Angst returns as Chicken, played by Jordan Chan, attempts to become a Hong Hing branch leader in uh, Tun Mun. Is that how you pronounce that, by the way? Yes. Okay, cool. However, evil Tongsing Triad Yu Yong, played by Roy Cheung, who's been resurrected from Young and Dangerous 3, manipulates the local Hong Hing into escalating a mini civil war. He secretly promotes Barbarian, a local Tunmun boy, to become branch leader, even though Barbarian is an idiot. His plan includes uh, knife fights, fake drug overdoses, and that uh, scourge of uh, Hong Kong uh, disrespectful students. Meanwhile, Karen Mock is busy teaching high school, where she runs into Michelle Hayes as an amazingly innocent and beautiful teacher. Plus, Hong Hing needs some leadership, so they recruit the late Mr. Chang's brother, played by Alex Mann, to lead them. All this and the continuing depression of Chan Ho Nam, played by Ikin Cheng, who's smarting over the loss of Smarty, played by Jiggy Lai. So, that's uh, Love HK Films uh, plot for you. Uh, obviously, we're going to do spoilers uh, because uh, if you're listening to the review of Young and Dangerous 4, we can't avoid certain spoilers from Young and Dangerous 1 through 3, including uh, why the heck, uh, what the heck does it mean that one cast member is re- resurrected. So, But uh, let me throw over to Paul first for a brief opinion of uh, Young and Dangerous 4. Are you tired of it all yet? Yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> this is... Uh it's it's really going through the motions in some places although with this film the one thing i do really appreciate is some of the continuity that carries over so again you know the sort of the the ongoing relationship between karen mock's character and jordan chan's character was nice eakin's kind of a bit mopey here you know as he's kind of just like hanging around mourning the loss of smarty i think his relationship with the michelle reyes character is not interesting at all she is she is flawless and i'm I'm depressed that she is not put to great to use because uh, i i love her i love michelle hayes but but her character just jumps into the sack like you know immediately with this this character she barely knows because he's a bad boy and i'm just like ah it's you know it's the the school angle you know that they kind of shoehorn in they're they're really pushing for the you know the the sort of the gto kind of thing you know where okay this uh this bad triad leader is going to come in and, and try and shape these, get these kids into shape a little bit. So there's a little bit of that going on. But my, my biggest problem, I think, with the underlying arc here, which is really focused on uh, chicken vying for branch leader, is how can he vie for branch leader? Because when I rem- if I remember correctly from the 
the last installment, right, he was coming in under banana. He was like the low man on the totem pole again because of... After he returned from Taiwan and then he had to start over, yeah. You know, how is he suddenly, you know, the number two again um, under Honam? It, it, that that kind of didn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, heck, promote Jerry Lamb, right? Because <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's there uh, causing trouble still. Him, him versus Barbarian, that would have been a movie, right? Yeah. And but then you I, you just get into some of the more tropey stuff again. Um, Roy Chung is back as a different character, but a guy again who's so you know detestable that you ask yourself why is anybody going to follow this guy again? You know because it seems like he's just going to throw you off the roof at any given moment. I mean who who wants to be around a guy like that um, unless he's paying them lots and lots of money? And if he's got that much money to pay him. He shouldn't really care about expanding his territory, right? Because he's already doing so well. But um, we do get the introduction of, of course, the great Sandra M um, as Sister 13 here, which for me is an important part, you know, of all of this because it does lead into Portland Street Blues. And it establishes her with in, in a very small but for me significant way with um, the other characters sort of in the Hong Hing circle, but um, with Vincent Wan as uh, the, another gang leader, Ben Han, and their relationship, which extends over into the Portland Street Blues, you know, is small but very significant, I think, and very well played, um, both in this film, which kind of establishes the two of them, and then in the next film. Um, so I really liked that. Um, and the continuity, too, with the politics, I thought was a little bit interesting. They bring in... Alex Mann as sort of this Thailand businessman who's the brother of Simon Yam's character. I, d I don't remember him. Um, this is how much I care. Did Simon Yam die in part three? Yeah, Simon Yam died. So they're bringing him in to sort of, you know, fill in the void because he's, you know, supposedly a really great businessman. And, you know, they want him to kind of take over because of, you know, there, there's there's a there's a kind of a blood tie sensibility there too you know because he's you know they're they're related by blood so you know he'd be a good choice that kind of that kind of idea is there as well rather than you know promoting one of the younger greener guys up up the ranks i guess um and i thought at first that he was going to come in and because and, I, I didn't really remember i thought he was going to come in and, and kind of ham it up and be the big bad but actually he kind of just lays back and he you know He's not really sure he wants to do it. And I found his role kind of interesting, too. And he's going to be in at least uh, one more movie. I think I saw him in the cast list for uh, five or six. So um, let me stop you right there. Um, f I, I, I agree. I mean, it's almost like Andrew Lau and writer Manfred Wong uh, panicked about the fact that they had not made a Young and Dangerous movie in a while. So any idea was thrown in there without being carefully worked out and structured. So it, it, it is the tropey stuff, as you said. Uh, some conflict about try. It's good. Conflicts about friends, between friends, good. Uh, triad election and something about 1997, genius, relevant. Uh, songs, chopping, uh, bring back Roy Chung because everybody was so stoned during part three. They won't notice we killed him off. And uh, does Anthony still have long hair? Oh, never mind, we'll just write something about the fact that he doesn't have long hair. Great, fantastic, bring everybody in. It's all over the place. It really is all over the place. And it's conflicts and action and drama, I think, is weak. And the life outside of the triad lifestyle that bleeds into the story and that which was a building block for the characters in free that i appreciated that's no longer interesting and it's long too it's the longest one i think 
and pretty dull and uh, um, d- despite so many familiar faces of the series being here again and some new ones I think this is the weakest one uh, so far and the weakest box office by a couple of million it's declining first one was 21 million second 22 then 19 15 12 7 so the, it declined uh, the audience interest um, bit by bit so you can't keep that magic formula of not trying that hard and just making really fast alive um, forever because uh, those especially the second one which is the most profitable one was clearly the one that was made the fastest to cash in and uh, so um, you know you can't uh, you can't uh, maintain your magic forever and they really started to annoy me a bit from the beginning because it seems to open with the same sort of atmos on repeat the loose camera style pop music uh, cool beat and cool people in black about to head into cool action granted paul it's a they're heading to a celebration so andrew lau is trying to establish that uh, they're friends and their family but um, i really I'm, I'm not infatuated with andrew lau's chosen hip style as such and i, I like that there is all sync sound so you have people yelling all over the place and to each other but uh, there's um, not something that catches you from the beginning and i i, I joke but i think <laughs> I, I think it's a writing solution when they mentioned that Taifei has been introduced to someone's uh, hairstylist or tailor and clean himself up, it looks like they brought Anthony from home. And Otto <laughs> said, "Like, do you have a day or something? Yeah, pay me. Yeah, okay. And then we'll improvise some stuff. And I, because he he is an interesting character, he genuinely is both funny, but he also represents something of uh, he he's not as." much of a hothead as you think and not as much as as a loose cannon as you think of the part two and then you sort of uh, you strip him of visual characteristics and i found that kind of problematic to be honest uh maybe if he had been in it more but no wonder when you expect something of a character like would would the um, equivalent be if uh, ikin cheng turned up in short hair instead as chan honam (laughs) <laughs> would you think that that would that have been jarring for you and that would have taken you out of any character engagement i mean if if they can explain it away in a line or two i'm fine with it it doesn't it doesn't bother me um all that much more so than some of the more so some of the more written things like i mentioned like you know chicken sudden rise and and things that are actually intentional as a part of the writing, but don't really make sense in the context of things that have happened before. So, um, and I like Ty Fate. I mean, I was happy. I wanted to see more of him on screen. So, uh, it was, it was just, you know, too bad that they, uh, couldn't utilize him and, uh, Sandra Moon's character more. I mean, I obviously knew Sister 13's, um, the substance of the character via Portland street blues. So by this being a Sister 13 cameo movie, I didn't have a problem with that because I know where we're going to go. But looking at it on its own, it, I, I find it hard to feel like that she makes an impact. Because they, this is only a cameo movie and not a, a role that we get to understand that much. But, uh, you know, it's their choice, I guess. Uh, it's a movie with a lot of characters. so And she is, she's completely new, so she's bound to be remembered in some shape or form. But it doesn't reek of oh my, you can go somewhere with this, judging by what they do with her and Vincent Wan in this movie. But uh, I suppose you had Portland Street Blues in your back, in your memory, and you've seen it before, maybe. That 
this didn't bother you either as such that, that it was just a cameo movie because you know that they're gonna go places with the character uh, but not the Andrew Lausai. Yeah, and it just it kind of reinforces the idea too that I had long remembered that I wished they would have just uh, created uh, you know another Portland Street Blues or another Thai Fei centric film that was you know really just the two of them <laughs> you know together and and you know just the occasional cameo of of um, some of the some of the other Y and D guys. Because 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 he is uh, he's not a romantic interest obviously but he is a a sort of right hand man to her and uh, a protector in some shape or form uh, Vincent Wan's character to Sondrum's uh, sister thirteen and it it really gets nicely expanded in in Portland Street Blues and uh, they're really good together uh, they're 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 a good fit on screen in that regard so um, uh, if there were any beats of note here in Young and Dangerous four. I've actually forgotten about if they had any notable back and forth, uh, Sandra and Vincent. Yeah, they. I mean, they do initially. Um, you know, they're they're kind of kind of antagonistic when they first meet in Thailand. He's like, you know, commenting on her lateness or something. And but then by the end, you can see that they've kind of gotten a little bit more respect for each other, and then they just kind of take that a bit further um, in, in the second film. But like you said, this film is so full of different characters and cameos i mean you've got ken low here as as a as a as a as one of the triad heads and you know they they bring people back i think the actor who played the the police officer that they refer to as god of gun who i think he was the guy who shot ugly kwan in the first film right and or or did he shoot crow i forget um he, he killed one of the one of the notable triad guys and then he got like a reputation as a as kind of a badass and and they bring him back here for comedic effect in one scene it, it's just chock full of people and even going back to pulling back footage from the old films you know and 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 revisiting some of the stuff that happened too yeah there's an extended little plot point from the first film that seemed innocent there and it plays a, a greater role here i suppose uh, uh, let's perhaps address the fact that you mentioned Roy Chung is back. Uh, he's not Crow this time around because Crow died. And uh, it's Hong Kong cinema logic. You and I know of it. But uh, I wonder if uh, audiences still would scratch their heads. Like what filmmakers in their right mind would recast someone the movie afterwards and uh, not make a fuss about it at all? I mean, Han Solo dies. And you recast him as another pilot to Chewbacca in Lost Jedi. He's like, oh, he's your new pilot, right? Like, come on, like you, you would, you, you would constantly notice that. But I guess it, it's just Hong Kong cinema being Hong Kong cinema. I guess for better or worse. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's like when you get some, some. I'm thinking of, uh, is it the in in the line of duty series where it's just like characters that are completely unrelated often in the, in even though this is you know a long sequel or when you make the jump between Chinese ghost story 2 and to a Chinese ghost story 3 and mm. you know it's Joy Wong and she's a ghost but she's not the same ghost you know and it's like kind of a similar story but not the same story so it's just something that I think they had tended to do just because of name recognition and who was popular at the time and so you just you know you pick them and throw them into another role the, the the problem there is Roy is dependable and he, he was good enough as Crow, but uh, he, he fell into that. No, not fell into, but he was depicted as one of those 
loose cannon type of bad guys that uh, is gonna bring you down and you you wonder as you said if uh, his uh, fellows are paid handsomely to uh to take that risk of going down with him but there's a sense of diminishing returns with a lot of these villains because of what francis did as you've already said so well with the ugly Quan character and then further you know furthered it with the spin-off films that you're just really trying to out ugly Quan, ugly Quan, with each of these successive villains, and it's it's a difficult job to do for any actor, I think. And in here, it particularly doesn't work. I, I didn't really buy the psychotic, calm nature to Roy, and I'm not blaming Roy. I mean, this comes from direction. I think it it it's not working in particular. This um, calm nature to him that then could lead to pushing someone off the roof and it even looks like he gets off on that a little bit there's a sexual component to that where he enjoys the flesh hitting the ground the sound of that <laughs> like he's almost he's almost doing that but that 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 doesn't make that role in particular very interesting and uh i'd hate to see a dull roy chung performance but i think we unfortunately got one here but i don't blame roy for that because um Andrew Lau hasn't been known to ignite his triad movies um, as such, and I think the, this is an, an elongation of uh, of that. I, it, it is in a position to talk of 1997, what will happen to triads and the triad world and how it all will be structured after China takes over in 1997, and if you can like how you can run it, can you run it like a businessman, or how, how how do you need to restructure things and and i think that they're in a great position so to say to to mention that but in my eyes not being very educated on these things but in my eyes here it's just right the manfred wong and andrew lau sort of mentioning it but there's nothing really to to the 1997 angle more than that i mean election i think went a little bit deeper in terms of that uh, but here it's just uh, we know of this we mentioned it. We're intelligent filmmakers now, right? And it really doesn't matter, I think, the 1997 angle when it all is said and done. Or what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's there. It's in the background as it is within a lot of films in this time period. But it it doesn't really get into the weeds of anything, um, as you mentioned. At least anything of substance uh, for, for you know for my book. And you'd get much better depictions of this and discussions of this in in later films like election or infernal affairs or even some of the you know the remakes like i want to say uh, wim chan's triad triad movie and the the young and dangerous uh, reboot as it were uh, go back to Yikin cheng and chan honam uh, you know at, at points the character is uh is a branch leader that would rather be quiet than not dominate the table there's a couple of scenes in thailand where certain characters are just talking 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 this is what i believe and uh, he is uh, not uh, a branch leader that uh, needs to be noisy in order to to lead but then again we are we we run into trouble where chan honam is not interesting beyond that or they, they don't uh, enhance that nature of his leading skills that much uh, yes he's sad over the death of his uh, girl but that wasn't particularly affecting the way it ended in part three and to extend it to here is merely them taking off matters to make sure there is continuity and that's obviously what you should do but it doesn't make for an affecting weight on the characters 
shoulder or anything. And uh, it, it doesn't really transition either into a, almost a token Chan Ho Nam chicken, um, you know, a little bit of standoff. They don't agree on all things. And uh, it doesn't really transition into anything that's interesting between them as well as you know one has more ambition than the other i got the impression that chan honam he he could take or leave this thing of ambition and promotion and taking over further further territories and chicken is a person that wants and can show it and can show it with enthusiasm but i didn't think this came to life necessarily that well manfred wong isn't that that particular writer that you just know will bring something from the page to life on screen as such it requires uh, a little magical act where we where the actors gel they try it granted because they have a little some one-on-ones between Eakin and Jordan but uh, maybe it's unfair but it's more it's more tv drama I feel and certainly not substance that uh stuck with me and uh, I, I kind of wanted it to because I, I like if you uh, that you scale things down and you talk of worldly matters but it's just these two characters that deal with it and that's not a bad choice in feel but I feel that, that that's not particularly interesting in, in the case of uh, case of this one did this sort of core of Chan Honam and Chicken but um, out of all elements though I think uh, they are slightly more interesting than the new plotting and the extension of uh, other other subplots and all of that. So um, and Jordan has he he remains probably the most interesting performer, and then Anthony Wong, I suppose, that has graced this series and 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 Francis, of course, but uh, only one movie. So um, that's I suppose uh, my take on that. Uh, did you take anything away from Chicken and Chan Honam's uh, different? drives and ambition as characters was that uh, a part of the drama that was compelling in in any way for you it didn't work so much for me again i think because of the continuity of what these characters have already come through it didn't seem to match up as i mentioned with you know chicken he's supposed to be at the sort of the bottom of the totem pole now he should have probably sold the soft drinks at the school yeah in this one. <laughs> i mean it, it would have made more sense and I again, you know, I'm, I'm guessing they're writing based on who the bigger box office draws are, which are obviously Eakin and, and Jordan. So the the business side of it, I kind of understand. But from the writing side of it, it would have made more sense if it would have been like, you know, Michael Tse's character instead of what ultimately becomes his fate in this film. In in, in two cases, really, because it starts out with a wedding and, and <laughs> you can kind of predict where it's going to end up after that. But you know, it would have made more sense with him being higher in the hierarchy of, of the guys that he would have been up for it. And and with Jordan already having had gone through some of the political upheaval in the second film and his betrayal and sort of all of that, to have him come back and kind of be angry with Eakin again, it was just it just felt like, eh, it, you know, it should have been another character who was in that and, and Eakin kind of like trying to say to that character no you don't really understand because jordan should understand because he was already kind of a branch head over in taiwan he you know and and so i i I just kind of felt that it was you know a a misplacement of the narrative in in some ways it would have worked better had it been another character and uh, we poke at jerry lamb of course he has you know (laughs) he has a role to play here too um and really it's it's the the one who always gets to the short end of the stick here is uh 
uh, Jason, Jason Chu, who doesn't have a lot to do. They 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 run a store together and sell yeah. milk and soft drinks at the school, I think. Which, you know, we talked about the fact that Young and Dangerous 3 allowed for seemingly a little outside the triad life uh, subplots. And that was kind of enjoyable, especially as Jordan Chan and Karen Mox characters uh, met and all of that. And, and here with Karen Mock, that she's apparently a teacher now. That was also fast-tracked, I think. I don't remember that her she was... Uh, on her way to uh, realizing a dream at the end of Rio. <laughs> and it's almost like they do a little mini stand and deliver here. If you remember that yeah. movie with <laughs> Edward James almost. And uh, and then they do a little mini, I don't know, fight back to school or school on fire for a while. I have no idea why they put Eakin in the classroom. Okay, the students are off uh, the Toon Moon area, so maybe they were trying to manipulate the situations. But it just felt like... Let's do a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Finish movie. Hurrah. Box office returns. And a long running time as as a result of this. Um, yeah, I, I wonder too if it was an attempt to address some of the controversy of the day in that, you know, these films really appealed to the secondary school students. And the secondary school students really looked up to these icons, the, these celluloid icons, if, if nothing else. And that was drawing them supposedly to to want to become you know triad so maybe this is their attempt to kind of dial that back and and say you know okay we'll have Honam go into the classroom and and he'll he'll be the like the you know the character in GTO and he'll say oh it's terrible and and you know you don't know what you're doing and uh, but but I mean I mean that that's an idea and that's right for development and focus and but but it's clearly not what Andrew Lau and Manfred Wong are sort of capable of doing or they don't allow themselves the time to develop one such idea it doesn't mean that they have to do an entire movie on it but they they, they come off as um, i have an idea shoot it now yeah and they do and that doesn't mean substance just because you uh, put it in there um and i think that's a problem with andrew Lau as a filmmaker that it never really jumps off jumps off the page when he attempts these things and uh Oddly enough, Manfred wrote, wrote uh, Portland Street Blues, and you know it's night and day the quality he he provides in that one. So who knows if this is Andrew Andrew Lau's fault for making everything dull? Even Jingle Ma could make a good try movie, as we saw in <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Cool. So I don't know who to blame, but uh, they they are good ideas, definitely. As the movie uh, peters out and. Uh, and uh, get to, you know, our crescendo, our violent crescendo. There's, uh, they're gonna hold uh, try a debate or try elections. I don't know. They, they rent us assembly hall. Yeah. It's not sort of the culmination of what violence has led to, and now we need to have an organized gathering where we deal with our differences verbally, violence-wise, because that's what we do in this world. But. I don't want to be sort of the guy who just say the harshest things just to say the harshest things. But to say that this is underwhelming is me trying to say the best thing I can about the ending. Because it's supposed to be a lot of, oh my god, it led to this. Oh my god, it was him, it was her. Oh my god, like violence. But it's so it's so indifferent as made and really the characters treat violence and death very in an indifferent manner too there could be corpses lying around the place and they're hey i won i won yeah 
So, you know, you, you don't need to spoil it, obviously. But um, in terms of ending, does it build up to anything worthy of tension and things like that? No, no, not really. I think, you know, there's... Um... You, you, you pointed out such a bad continuity <laughs> error that you wonder, like, well, who, they were asleep at the helm, clearly. It's not really a continuity error, per se. It's just like... All right, is this what people would be doing? You know, there because there's a scene where a, a person gets shot, and then it's like normally when a person gets shot, you would think that all right, there's kind of a scramble to kind of help that person or, or something, and you know that person would be screaming in pain or something. And but no, no, the, the, that person's just kind of like lying there watching everything unfold. It's like <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll just hang out, guys. It's really that engaging. Yeah. Just I forgot I was shot. You know. Acting is good. I can just lie here in the background and hang out. Is that the camera over there? Maybe it's a strategy by the filmmakers to say, yeah, see, Triad Life's not that exciting, boys and girls. It's just like Speech Club or Debate Club, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is Debate Club by the end. It's a different ending. They don't chop away and all of that. and everybody. It's a big gathering of, uh, you know, something's going to change in the whole hierarchy, of course. And uh, But to... We, we we don't care particularly about uh, you know who advanced at the end of this one, uh, really didn't, which is a shame because uh, it involves a few of the characters that we do care about, but uh, it's it's oddly just completely flat and neutral for uh, for something that's supposed to be uh, an ending, a crescendo, a finale, a climax. And anything else you want to say about the movie or the finale as such? Who were you rooting for for to get to, to get the Toon Moon District <laughs> in the end? Sister Thirteen. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a lot more of the same. Again, there there are moments, you know, little moments here and there that that really interest me. But overall, it's a lot of repetition of stuff that um, has already been done before and and done better in some ways. And this this is again part of that era of Hong, sort of the tail end of that era of Hong Kong film, where they're still trying to get stuff done in, in a sort of rapid fire manner. So, you know, quality is for sequels is not expected to be that good. And even in terms of, I think the cinematography, um, one of the things that stood out to me was that, you know, so far throughout the series, cinematography has not been anything to write home about. When we get to the next film though, I think the cinema cinematography looks much, much better. Yeah. Uh, I don't know um, how much time Andrew, was allowed to focus on his photography duties because he was the cinematographer too on this one. Uh, but that could have been a, a good little thing, like to make a, a gritty sort of loose trial movie. That, that could have worked, but uh, these movies never exploded into that as such. Um, only in select moments in one, there's a, some gunplay uh, towards the end, and that, that looks stylish, I suppose, but uh, that's about it. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if... Uh, Young and Dangerous 5 and 6 are deserving of uh, uh, of our coverage. I mean, I remember the Love HK Film Review of 6 uh, highlighted that uh, it was more mature and had more ideas than the other ones. So maybe that's a bit of a more, bit of a more grown-up Young and Dangerous movie, uh, the Born to be King entry, but um, we'll see. But uh, as for availability for Young and Dangerous 4... Uh, you know, a bit randomly, Young and Dangerous 3 got a newer Hong Kong release. I think it's on Blu-ray as well. But as the rest of the series we've covered otherwise, Part 4 is out of print. And it's not been uh, reissued. Uh, 
I finally got, I mentioned it a couple of times, that there was a Young and Dangerous 1 through 6 DVD box set released in Malaysia by the label Speedy. And I, they are a legit company as far as I know. And uh, I did order it to satisfy my curiosity slash that's a way for me to actually get Young and Dangerous 4 through 6 without spending $50 per DVD on second hand. Uh, and and I went through uh, part one and to do some screen caps and the part four as well. And they still have Maya logos on them, the, even the big red warning screens and all of that. And uh, therefore, it's the same uh, cinema print transfers as uh, as Maya provided. Uh, but uh, at least the part six, Born to Be King, is uh, the universe transfer, but we're, uh, with optional subtitles like they originally did for their DVD, uh, but minus the unskippable universe logos. Uh, so that speedy set, it might be licensed properly, uh, but but it doesn't scream uh, deluxe set necessarily because uh, the discs are in these double-sided plastic sleeves when you open it up and. Uh, if they're hard to get 4 through 6, I have 1 through 3 already on UK DVD and they have remastered subtitles. So this was an option for me to go uh, to go with. But um, re- maybe I supported a bootlegging entity that uses the Speedy logo, who knows. But uh, I did get it to satisfy my curiosity and now I can watch 5 through 6. It definitely has a greater chance of being legit versus the Young and Dangerous 12 DVD box set that we talked of many times. It used to have 12 DVDs plus a couple of CDs. Uh, you can find it on eBay, a lot of them on eBay. Uh, they were also packaged in basic uh, plastic uh, sleeves and uh, even have Portland Street Blues and Legendary Taipei and a couple of the spin-offs, but, but not Once Upon a Time in Tri Society and the likes. Uh, uh, and also, if you go to eBay, they they list uh, the um, language as Cantonese. So, <laughs> that's swall. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll readily admit, if I could still get that set with the CDs in them, because I'm curious, like, can, can I get the, the soundtrack? Because the, some of the songs are catchy. That would be cool. But uh, now it's only 12 DVDs, and uh, I have most of those movies. I even saw in the listing but not on the actual picture, that they now listed the inclusion of... What was the um, Jordan Chan, Ikin Cheng movie, Once a Gangster? Yes. That a movie from like uh, 10 years ago or something? Yeah. Apparently that is in there. It's like a super new one, but that wasn't part of the Young and Dangerous uh, canon. And uh, it, it was a triad movie, but um, its own thing, comedic to a degree. I uh, don't remember much from it, to be honest. Yeah, so that's it. But uh, we we have we have it all available if we want to go further, and uh, if we want to uh, go further and uh, examine the legendary ty- the legendary Taipei, Paul has it in a glass case in his house to make sure that it, that edition never is disturbed <laughs> because it's one of those like uh, you know like Scrooge McDuck uh, his first dollar, you, <laughs> you your first Taipei DVD or VCD is in a glass VCD, case. Yeah. I yeah. know it. I know it. Uh, but uh, let's uh, let's uh, end this right now. Do a little promotional break, and after that, we're gonna review the first of maybe a few of the spin-off movies from the Young and Dangerous Universe. And we've hinted at it, but I might as well sort of say it. We we mentioned that one through four, they're uneven films, not masterpieces. So does that mean the spin-offs are automatically lesser in quality than that? And are just poor imitations of uh, what we've seen and disliked. Well. 
We'll be right back after the break to give you our verdict on Portland Street Blues. Hint, it won awards. Available now on KungFuMovieGuide.com, it's the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. That's right, be sure to check out the Kung Fu Movie Guide for our first season of podcasts. Available from KungFuMovieGuides.com My name is Ben Johnson and you can join me as I have some serious in-depth conversations with some of the leading lights in the world of martial arts movie making. From directors to stuntmen to actors to choreographers to fellow writers and bloggers... Be sure to tune in over the next few months to get your fortnightly fix of all things Chopsocky. Visit KungFuMovieGuide.com to check out the podcast and keep up to date with the site by following us on Twitter at KFMovieGuide. And may Buddha bless you. And welcome back in the second review of this episode is our sort of first official uh, out of a couple of, who, who knows, movie reviews that are connected to Young and Dangerous, but the spin-offs, uh, the connected movies. Uh, this is not part five of uh, Young and Dangerous. Uh, Portland Street Blues is a origin story of the Sandra mm, Sister 13 character. And uh, the plot uh, goes as follows uh, from uh, the Love HK film review of the film. Uh, the official spin-off of the ever-popular Young and Dangerous series focuses on the origin and exploits of uh, uh, Sister 13, played by Sandra, mm, the lesbian leader of uh, Portland Street, who made her debut in Young and Dangerous 4. Once upon a time, uh, Sister 13, and he writes uh, Subsamoy, which apparently means Sister 13. Uh, she was a heterosexual street kid with a low-ranking uh, hunging boy, for a father, played by Mantat. Uh, through a series of incidents, mostly harrowing ones, her path is formed, including uh, among these is her first love, a Tongsing triad named Coke, played by Alex Fong, and her best friend, played by Christy Young. I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm sure you, you have some memories of this, if this was my first view of Sandra, mm, you know, as a as a dramatic actress, uh, knowing she was a comedic actress mostly, and now I can see her in a, in a dramatic role. I have a feeling I saw Juliet in Love before this one. Uh, but I, I knew right away somehow, Paul, that this is a great fit for this actress. Why wasn't she put in dramas earlier? Because this is as natural of a fit as I've ever seen. And really, my, my least favorite part of her canon of performances is when she was just depicted as the ugly one for comedic purposes in Inspector Westgirts and all of that. It wasn't a great comedic act. She was game for it, but dramatic roles, that's what I look for, Sandra. And, and maybe better comedic roles in the wake of her acclaim, I suppose. Uh, I, I bet there are some. I mean, Golden Chicken, the Golden Chicken 1 and 2 movies, they're pretty good, especially the second one. But they're also a good mix of light stuff and more dramatic stuff. Um, so I, I might as well turn to you. Did, did, did Sandra, you know, appear on your screens on renting VHS and laser discs as such, and it was the comedic stuff over and over again, and then the dramatic stuff came came to you? Yeah, I mean, this was definitely sort of outside of the the norm for what I'd typically seen her in. And you you do have um, lots of films that you mentioned, you know, where she's kind of uh, in in the vein of uh, Lydia Shum, right, where she's really just kind of typecast as this loud, sort of boisterous character. 
you know, and often as the quote unquote ugly girl, though I never considered her to be, you know, ugly, but they would always sort of juxtapose her against, uh, you know, Amy Yip or somebody else who was being sort of headlined as the, the screen starlet. And she had to take the brunt of the jokes. And she was always fine for me for doing that. I mean, I always thought she had a great sense of comedic timing and she had a, you know, a, a great face for doing the, the, the reactionary comedy. Um, sometimes, you know, when she would be doing those sort of loud, boisterous roles, it would get annoying. But I think that was kind of the intent um, for some of the characters. So when she would do roles that were kind of outside of that and i'm thinking of i think it was it uh love is love where she's kind of like the romantic interest with uh, stephen chow and and you know she's getting a chance to sort of go outside of that sort of comedic pigeonholing um she starts to shine a little bit and of course she really comes into her own in in sort of the post-millennium and you know the films you mentioned uh, golden chicken uh, Juliet and Love and, and a lot of others that kind of uh, lead into this era of of her where she's not she's she's not only redefined herself as an actress, but she's kind of redefined herself uh, physically as well. You know, she lost a considerable amount of weight uh, across the 90s and sunned up. And it's interesting here because I think you'll see a lot of parallels in what she does with this role in terms of her physicality. And what she's able to pull off later when she does the, is it the third or the fourth film in the Golden Chicken series, uh, 12 oh, did Golden four? Ducks. Yeah. I don't think I was aware of the fact that they did more than two, to be honest. Well, there's Golden there's golden Chicken, Golden Chicken 2, there's Golden Chicken SSS, which is the third one, and then there's 12 Golden Ducks, where she oh, okay. plays a male gigolo. In that role where, again, she's kind of tapping back a little bit into the sort of the Sister 13 role and also trying to swab it up a little bit. I think she's borrowing a little bit from Andy Lau. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's great, you know, Good because luck. she's got all this flexibility now that she's been able to put sort of the, that pigeonholed era of the, of the 80s and early 90s behind her. Um, and she can do stuff, you know, she can do, you know, she can take on a role where she's comedic, you know, she's she's shown up in some of the Chinese Lunar New Year comedies. She can take on um, roles that are more serious. I'm thinking about um, the role she did with Vivian Chow a few um, back in the mid 90s or sorry, the mid 2000s. Is it All Is Love? I want to say is the title. Well, I know. Well, I know she did uh, perhaps Love for Peter Chan, but maybe you're not thinking of that. No, perhaps Love was the musical. I think right. Um, I, 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 I have, to, have to go back and look. But, you know, she's just done a wide variety of work and continued to sort of... Uh, all about love. All about love. That's right. Yeah. Build a very interesting, you know, body of films to go back and, and sort through. Do you remember if she uh, turned up um, often or semi-frequent um, uh, hosting like the Hong Kong Film Awards? Because I remember a clip where she and Eric Tsang were the hosts and they were they were all they were even on the podium when they were reading out like best actors and stuff and looking at like wow is that the one who won like they 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 seemed like a team at least for one year i i i know what year it was because i i it was the year that the anhoi movie the way we are the way we are mm -hmm. won a couple of big awards mm. and uh, they were there on the stage like ah fantastic and so they they, um, they 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 were hosts that were in in that area of the show as well like you, you don't see that at the oscars you don't see billy crystal there looking over 
you know, Anthony Hopkins uh, giving out an award like, oh, look at that, look at who's won, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my God. Mm. So, but but do you remember she did like hosting gigs as such with, with or without? She's done, um, I mean, she's not as prolific as Eric Zhang, who, you know, has these Sunday variety shows that, you know, pop up on TVB. But she was doing radio for a while, commercial radio. Um, she had a, a hosting gig on there. And then she did a couple stage shows I think she did one with Chapman, uh, not Chapman Toe, uh, Chan Tatman, sorry. Um, she did a, a stand-up show with him. I think she might have done a solo show too, if memory serves, or I, I might be thinking of somebody else. But, you know, she's bounced around um, across different media platforms and found success, you know, pretty much wherever she's, she's ventured. I don't think she's released a, a, a singing album yet, <laughs> like some, you know, some, some other actors, uh, Lang Chuai uh, and, and and other people, <laughs> but uh, that that seems like it was a r- r- written in the stars. Considering uh, you know we we're gonna release an album, we're gonna, we're gonna call it Ugly. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay, give me money at the release. Um. So so yeah, with, with this uh, prequel to her character in the Y and D timeline before the Hung Hing Boys of it all, as we know it, uh, uh, it comes in the form of uh, Portland Street Blues. It wasn't a hit. I mean, it made it made about four million at the time, which is a crime. It's a crime. It really is. I mean, it, it's possibly also the first movie in this series and universe to be seriously awarded, because the Hong Kong Film Awards gave Sandrum the Best Actress statuette and Shu Kei Shu Chi won uh, an award for her supporting role. Uh, the Hong Kong Film Critics Society voted on uh, Shu Chi as well, I believe. He really was acknowledged in that regard. And uh, it was co-written and produced by series regular Manfred Wong, but Andrew Lau was not tapped to direct, and uh, the directing gig instead went to Raymond Yip, who certainly is a veteran, but you might agree on this, it certainly wasn't on the cards necessarily that he could break out into a dramatic voice. No, not after movies like I'm Your Birthday Cake, $60 million man, and subsequent comedies such as uh, Beauty and the Breast and My Dream Girl with Eakin. <laughs> I mean, none of that lit up. That, I mean, I'm Your Birthday Cake is fun. I haven't seen $60 million man. Beauty and the Breast was an absolute turd of a movie. And My Dream Girl with Eakin, I read, was not that great of a romantic comedy. So it didn't seem like uh, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming along soon <laughs> and uh, and then he made Portland Street Blues and it seems like the most natural thing in the world for Raymond to direct this uh, drama he actually also handled another Young and Dangerous spin-off movie as late as 2000 which is apparently the chicken story at some point he deviates uh, and that was made as uh, Those Were the Days one of many movies that were in English called Those Were the Days and he has since uh, directed or co-directed the Bruce Lee biographical drama, Bruce Lee, My Brother, and the second thought-to-be-shelved forever Iceman movie starring Donnie Yen. And that wasn't met with, well, any acclaim, really. <laughs> I think uh, even those who had not seen Iceman 2, who only saw Iceman 1, maybe I would have preferred Iceman 2, would, would have been left in its, uh, in its shelved state. A nice block somewhere, but uh, that was Raymond. Uh, uh, who knows what was given to him in terms of well, helm this. <laughs> see what, see how it goes. But uh, it, it's not one of those directors where you have this firm. I can talk for ten minutes about this director, but you know the proof is in the filmography that there's a couple of comedies in there that are watchable. Some are not. And then you have Portland Street Blues, and um, I don't know if you have ever had any sort of conscious thoughts on that. That 
that's rather strange that the $60 million man director went and made this, but uh, it, it's certainly nice to see that um, he um, he sort of naturally slots himself into making a trier picture with a dramatic tint that isn't awkward, right? Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, he's he's got a lot of work in other places, you know, not as director, but often as assistant director. I mean, if you look at the films he's been attached to, you know, it's it's in many ways a a, a best of series, right? For a lot of the films of the the 80s and 90s, titles like uh, you know Chinese Ghost Story, the Royal Tramp series, Casino Tycoon, Fight Back to School. So I'm I'm guessing that uh, he's just somebody who's willing to take up work when it's thrown his way, you know, um, and perhaps that's how he ends up with some of the things that he has on his filmography as a director. Yeah, those, um, it's really only this one I remember liking. Uh, I mean, Bruce Lee, my brother, I remember was okay, but n- nothing that stuck with me. And I, Iceman 2, I never need to see, really. Uh, but uh, and Beauty in the Breast, I mean, Francis and co-stars have breasts. Yep, that, I, I, saw, I saw it. <laughs> But that's about it. Well, I mean, you you go back to the one before that, and it's Women from Mars, where you've got oh, Eakin yeah. and Michael Wong. And, well, I got to uh, see it now. <laughs> I think they, lo- they lose their pe- penises. In that they lose their some. peepees, yep. <laughs> so um, classic, maybe not, but uh, requisite viewing nonetheless. But uh, hey, that's Raymond for you. Let's uh, move on over to the short opinions of Portland Street Blues. And I think this is pretty, uh, I mean, we've hinted at it, but it's pretty exemplary exploration of a character in this universe that wasn't it, it, it didn't reek of like there's dramatic possibilities here this is the movie that confirms that there's dramatic possibilities here and there's sort of world building now and that, that's interesting uh, character building uh, within the world that's super interesting perhaps it's due to andrew Lau not directing manfred wong perhaps always wrote something great but it never ended up great on the screen but regardless the, the commercial sheen or maybe pressure or lack of pressure made the makers focus on character beats emotions how tragedy shapes you but regardless of what went into it it, it really is a winner uh, perhaps the wrap-up plot of this movie feels a little lesser versus the hun- previous hundred minutes of quality stuff but these tropes in this movie they're still miles ahead of any of the young and dangerous entries i've seen so i think uh, it was always a winner and it still is and possibly has gotten better over time so that's my short opinion for now Uh, what do you want to say in short about portland street blues yeah i mean if you're gonna watch one film out of the young and dangerous series this is the one to watch i mean it's got all the similar familiar triad beats uh present and so much more story and and acting and and character building and just good chemistry um throughout that uh, i would say you know if i had to throw one at anybody this is the one i'd give them even though you you are somebody who isn't familiar with the quote-unquote universe of the hung hing boys and and all of that i don't think it's really necessary i mean it's kind of an added bonus but if you don't really want to slog through the, those first four films, then, yeah, it's it's a standalone film and it's a good film. Indeed. I mean, already from the beginning, while it looks like 
any other triad movie. I mean, it looks good, though, but it l- looks like a triad movie. You're, you're familiar with uh, these visual beats. It, it just comes off as more commanding and more... There's even more meaning and even more tension in in like confrontations that, uh, for instance, the one that opens the movie with uh, Sandra and uh, the sort of wild, loud, psychotic triad boss that Peter Nor plays. Those threats of confrontation... That, that are here like she's quiet and he's loud and uh, the girls around her they're called out as weak but Sandra keeps her cool already five minutes in it's like 10,000% more interesting because they're, 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 there's enough tension here that's uh, you are way more invested uh, you get the added bonus of course of w- w- which is something young and dangerous continue to do but you still get the added bonus of this movie being shot in sync sound so and I think that's all the more meaningful for a movie that's good, but also character-driven to have genuine sound here. Uh, and uh, yeah, so even hundreds of tried movies in, like uh, seeing these tropes, like boastful, confident, cackling bosses, is way more cool in this movie. And it it doesn't feel loose and kind of Andrew Lau half-hearted. And and you get interested watching Sandra as she she's a boss that doesn't flinch either. Because at one point there are several tried fellows running at her with machetes. And somehow she knows that's not for her. She is not the target. So she, she doesn't flinch. Um, and uh, she, she seems to speak when it's appropriate to speak. And when she does, she's commanding. She, she doesn't need to be loud. And this is five minutes in, Paul. And I'm already super interested in these nuances. And I think that that says something about the movie that it can... And, and I hope it's not due to me, like, looking for any quality. Like, any quality of The Young and Dangerous. Well, give me anything. Like, give me women from Mars or something. <laughs> but I, I really think there is something here that, uh, coming from the script, coming from the cinematography, sync sound, the actors, Raymond Yip, that it's just, it just feels more interesting. Uh, and this is you know the setup of a flash and when we get the flashback later but i don't know if you picked up on this that did this feels more thorough or, or simply better than the young and dangerous movie felt like in terms of how it opens yeah i think so it, it not only feels better it looks better i mean as i mentioned in the first segment i think the cinematography here just it, it the colors aren't washed out like tends to be the style i don't know if it's because they didn't want to worry about uh, whatever kind of film stock they were using and they didn't want to you know pay attention to lighting too much but here there's much more attention to detail where that stuff is concerned the set dressing um, how characters are lit i think um you know it's it's again it's not gonna win awards necessarily but it's a nice move away from what was the standard in the four films before the other nice thing too here is that uh, it's there there's parallel stories so you've you've got the character sort of in present day post you know young and dangerous 4 um because the the relationship she has with uh, the um Ben Sir character is or Ben Han character played by Vincent Wan so within this film the 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 relationship has continued on from what was established in young and dangerous 4 which is nice. But then, so you've got that sort of contemporary storyline going, but then it jumps back to, you know, how did she get here? How did she actually get into, into the triads? And we get, you know, the story of her much younger with her dad played by um, the always great Mantat. Um, but you also get to see 
in sort of the flashback era, the early characters, you know, people who've already been axed, as it were. You know, before we get, before we get to that, I don't think we were very clear about the fact that uh, when we mentioned relationship between Sister Thirteen and Ben Horn, w- w- would it be fair to say that he's more of a he, he's her second in command and he's uh, looking after her, but there, there is you know care between them and not romantically, right? Yeah, although I wouldn't say he's her second. He seems to be a branch leader at kind of at the same level as her mm-hmm. um, for a different district. He just has, you know, somehow decided that there's a chemistry there. He's not sure what it is, whether it's kind of the chemistry of brotherhood or sisterhood or romantic chemistry. Because they're always uh, side by side. Yeah, and, and I think I think that there's a you know there's some interplay there which is interesting as a, as sort of a carryover. But I don't he's not he doesn't work for her. He's not her subordinate right. at least not as it was established in Young and Dangerous Four. It's just he's come to look out for her and she you know I guess looks out for him in in the same kind of way. And so they've got this nice kind of kinship going on. And it really is nicely underplayed and yet to understand it fully because they're, they're, they're there for each other, for emotional and physical safety. Uh, and that connection is so appealing without going down any obvious routes. Uh, there's a wonderful scene later in the movie where they, they, you know, they do something very obvious that, you know, the present that he gives her. So it's wonderfully played because they kind of realize like this that no, we're not doing this. Like this is okay. No, 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 no. We're not doing this. Just a present. For heaven's sake, man. And uh, my God, uh, that's a that's golden interplay between those two. I think uh, it's the strong point of this movie, and neither overplays their role. It's just just nicely natural. So, but uh, but you mentioned that this movie takes place a little while back, uh, whether it's ten years earlier or a couple of years earlier than when the Hung Hing boys uh, came onto the scene, but the uh, characters are that we knew from the beginning in Young and Dangerous 1, they were older and they were on the scene. So um, what happens when when the camera points to old, the olden times in this movie? Yeah, so, I mean, again, we get some returning faces, and even though they're small parts, for the most part, I mean, cameos is, is the correct word to use, it's such a pleasure to see them there. Oh, yes, you know? Again, especially a, a coming off of film four. So it's like, yeah. You know, it's okay if you spoil that because it's not a plot spoiler and it's early in the movie. So if you want to mention like the first cam, probably the first cameo that comes to mind uh, to you. Francis is back, yeah, as, as Brother Kwan, which was something that I had not remembered that they brought him back. So when he shows up, it's like, oh, oh yeah, he's yeah, this is great. It's nice. And you do have other... People from the era who were popular um, that show up, you know, not just uh, Mantap, but also, um, you know, Shu Chi is here. And she she's another one who returns later in the series, but as a different character. So they kind of, you know, yeah. do a Roy Chung with her as well. You know, can I just uh, mention something about Francis? I also think it's wonderful and delightful. And for me, it's all the more delightful that it's the first time we hear Ugly Kwan, the Ugly Kwan performance in Sync Sound. We always knew it was Francis who dubbed himself with a raspy voice. But we get to hear it in sync sound that, yeah, that, that's how he performs it live. And also beside him is Frankie mm, and um, a dead cat they used as a hairpiece for Frankie. <laughs> uh, so Frankie, because he's younger, he's tote not bald. So yeah. uh, they're at the Mahjong table uh, together. And uh, Frankie's character would be... Uh, I guess uh, the boy's first uh, first boss. 
in in the whole uh, in the whole connection there. So, uh, and, and it's, it, the thing is, all of a sudden, it just takes a couple of minutes, twenty minutes or whatever. We now enjoy that the universe can be expanded, and we recognize the connections like this. Again, I'm 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 stomping on him while he's down, I suppose. But Andrew Lau would not have been able to enhance this universe like this. I, I, I guess it took a change of change of cost and crew a little bit, uh, and uh, maybe this one was in development a little bit more. I heard it was shot super quick, but maybe this was in development a little bit more, and therefore comes off as a more focused product. Um, and I'm very grateful for that because uh, the makers show patience and care, and uh, they let the performers. Uh, breathe and uh, that expands the movie you know so and i'm curious to know too and i maybe this information is out there buried in in some uh chinese language film history site or something i'm really curious to know how this film itself came about i mean it would have been a great little you know 10 minute uh, behind the scenes thing um had they had they wanted to go that route but i mean was this just you know was it the extent that when they signed up Sandra in the fourth film that they contractually said, okay, we'll give you a spinoff. Or was it that she was so popular with the audience members, even that little role that she had in the fourth film that they said, Hey, we need to do a, a film focused on her because you know, her, her character has played well with audiences or I, you know, there's, there's a bit of history here that I think is, is worth uncovering. Um, if that information is out there or if it's ever been talked about, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm certainly curious. I, I know uh, Hong Kong stuntman uh, Jude Poyer, he mentioned that this movie was shot in 14 days or thereabouts, which is crazy how good it is and how, you know, glossy for a type of movie it is. So, as, um, as opposed to Young and Dangerous 2, which looks like it was shot in about 14 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go to Taiwan for a couple of hours, to shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, do, do you think the transition... Too young works to uh, because presumably we get a late teen version of the character through a uh, costume and the hair change and the demeanor. Do you think uh, Sandra is up for that change? Yeah, I mean, for me, she sells it, and uh, I think that the characterization is and you know the the costuming and everything helps to establish that well enough. The the chemistry she has with Mentat has her father. You know, that that feels right for me. And the interesting thing, too, is that when we when she's established in in the fourth movie, you know, and it, it almost becomes a, a bit of a, a gag there that she is a lesbian character. And then in this film, they walk that back a little bit. And, OK, she's not necessarily lesbian. She's bisexual, uh, as as we learn. And, and, you know, there's there's a depth there. And again, that kind of plays out in um, in the, the relationship she has with the Vincent Juan character because of that, because it's like this. Well, you know, it's you know, it's complicated. It's complex. And she's a complex character. And I think that makes it all the more interesting. But I do wonder if because of the time period that this was set, I mean, Hong Kong itself is still not very. Um, accepting of, you know, characters who are not heterosexual, we'll say, as as kind of sort of lead supporting characters. And um, the film she did that we talked about um, with Vivian Chow was well received, but, you know, again, not something that was super successful. And it's it's an issue that I think, especially in media portrayals. Was that a female romance, uh, All About Love? I haven't seen it. Yes. So. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, 
and it was i mean not necessarily just a just a female romance it's 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 about you know issues of the day as well but primarily it's a love story and but but it's again one of these things that seems to come in ebbs and flows where it's like it gets popular for a while but then you know the for whatever reason, media censorship and and other things kind of have some pushback on it. And so part of me wonders, too, if this film was perhaps a, a bit too progressive for its time. And perhaps that's another reason why it didn't do quite as well as they had hoped. I, I, I do agree that they, she, she performs a smooth transition to young and this late teen version of herself because she, she can appear that um, energetic and, and youthful. She has that in her as a performer anyway, without it being too comedic or anything. And uh, the world continues to be, it's a bit more frightening than whatever we saw in Young and Dangerous. It's a world that can corrupt. Uh, there are characters that uh, will suggest that the suggest at the drop of a hat uh, I believe um, one character maybe John Ching's character brother SOB suggests to Christy Young or maybe Sandra herself that oh you should let uh, your daughter work for me uh, because she can be a prostitute and we move through these various environments you know these uh, dens these uh, love motels the, the Sandra and her friend Christy Young they, they perform this scam it is to, which doesn't make them morally upright characters, but it's the world that they're in. In a world where money is king, you know, you you gotta do something, I suppose, and she is young. And uh, so the world is just more infinitely interesting, and performers are as well, as we clearly established, including uh, Alex Fong. He's an actor who grew into his looks, and therefore his sort of cinematic comfort changed completely because if you roll back to the 80s and 90s partly he was a bit of a had a bit of a whiny dorky persona despite being the lead of the angel series but he was never this cool suave hero and here in 1998 he's grown into his look so much more and has a quiet presence and charisma about him as the character of uh, of coke and which 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 plays a crucial part of uh, possible romantic interest. But uh, I'm not sure you ever saw like the real-time transition of Alex Vong then and then Portland Street Blues came onto your radar after you've seen all the Angel movies or maybe Escape from Brothel. But there, there was a change here in Alex and a, a, a quiet comfort that just elevated him several notches as an actor. And uh, it's present here. You can probably see it in Double Tap and One Night in Mong Kok and... Uh, those kind of movies where it, he was just his presence could sell me easily, and, and it really originated from Portland Street Blues, uh, his uh, his uh, his quieted, and um, you know lo- looking way more handsome uh, to it. As I said, he grew grew into his looks. So uh, yeah, might as well throw, uh, ask you that if uh, you ever formed some coherent, concrete uh, uh, thoughts on Alex Fong. Uh, there's a younger Alex Fong, but uh, that's a that's a you, you know what? Before we go to that, this movie was uh, co-written by Patrick Kong, and doesn't Patrick Kong put Alex Fong in a lot of his <laughs> directed movies? I think it's a different Patrick Kong, right? It's um... is it really? I thought it was uh, the the rom com rom Kong. Uh, Oh no, you're King. right. It is. It, it is the same. It is is Patrick Kong Pak Lung. I didn't realize. Yeah, it's the same one. Because he he casts uh, Alex Fong Lik Sun in a lot of his movies, but uh, we're talking of Alex Fong Chung Sun. So 
yes <laughs> in this movie but but anyway uh, uh thoughts on alex Wong uh, before or in this movie honestly i prefer prefer the other <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because i prefer the, uh you know I, i'm a sucker for the dorky rom-com stuff um and when i think of when i think of the i mean i like alex Wong, uh chong sun you know they call him the richard gear of of hong kong cinema which I think is is an, a, an apt title, but he kind of is always in that same role, you know. He's kind of always like the the the, the somewhat brooding loner hero guy. Um, on you know he he's had some variation over the over the years, but if you look at a lot of his filmography, he's you know typecast into that in in, in into you know big blockbuster stuff and also like you know some pretty low budget stuff as well. So. He, he's a working man's actor to be sure, um, but he's never been a big draw for me. He's not somebody who says, "Oh, there's a new Alex Wong film." You know, do you, do you, you know, it's not something I, I'm desperate to rush out and 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 see just because he's in it. But he does lend gravitas, uh, you know. So you you have to give him credit for that. Does this movie um this movie's violence uh, does it uh, resonate more with you versus uh, the violence that they drop every now and again in Young and Dangerous or whether gunplay or chopping and people being thrown off roofs and all of that um does this uh, you know uh, have, have a greater impact on you you know because your leads here are pretty much the girls uh, sandrum and christy young because a lot of it is implied violence of angry men towards these women who are not necessarily innocent but it's it's that power dynamic which is different you know whereas in in the y&d films it's usually you know, uh, we're, we're plotting to kill Honam or we're plotting to, you know, uh, make chicken look bad or, or, you know, uh, get the, get the boys on the run or something. And so you get that street level violence and you get, you know, assassination attempts and things like that. But there, there's a different sensibility to it. You know, it's like ne- never, never does anybody come up to chicken and say, um, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to rape you first. The, the implications of violence are certainly different in this film. And that makes it more interesting in some ways because, again, the fact that uh, as a character syndrome is able to to deal with that and and rise above it into a position of prominence makes her, I think, much more of a badass than Hona. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's a very good point. Uh, but looking at the the violence alone, if you look at the technical depiction of it, it is more violent. It is more distressing. Uh, she has a finger smashed at one point and you, you yeah. can see sort of the gory aftermath of that and uh, they don't enhance it a lot with like these stock special um uh, oil, uh foley effects uh, you know um so it feels a little bit more realistic at one point uh, a character's head is continually hit and be uh, you know there's a continual head beating with a brick and it's not terribly complex technically but it's the repetition that gets to you and I, I think they stage it very well, uh, leaning on maybe a little bit more realism for these movies. They, uh, this is not, uh, this is no fun anymore. Uh, tried life is no fun anymore. For for the the girls, tried life felt a little bit more fun, I suppose, where they managed to perform these scams, and at one point it doesn't work anymore. I guess it sort of helps that uh, what would have been a stock character is uh, kind of elevated by actor John Ching. You know who who you're not supposed to root for at all, 
this is the vial of vials of the vial, I suppose, uh, brother S O B, you know, which obviously uh, brother son of a bitch, sure, but uh, uh, I don't know if you remember the explanation now, but uh, it's it, it's a uh, it, it's a different uh, translation of his uh, of his name in uh, in Cantonese, but still, it's it's a telling uh, a telling name, uh, brother S O B, I suppose, in uh, in Cantonese. Yeah, in Cantonese, uh, he's called Hamsapgo, which is basically like you know, horny brother or lecherous brother. And it it's, a, it's again, a, a labeling of him as somebody who's, I guess he very often goes after women and, and, you know, is all about the sexy time and, but also the mistreatment of women, which, you know, comes across. The thing I'll say too, is even, even his character as the villain, I feel is much more nuanced in many ways than what we get from say the villain of Crow or um, later villains in, in the regular Y&D series because, I mean, he's loud, he's boisterous, but he's not so over the top that it's unbelievable. I mean, there there's a scene where uh, he has an exchange with Mantat where he really does him wrong. And it's like, you know, he's got a couple fellows with him and it's like, yeah, this is, you know, this feels believable as opposed to picking a guy up and throwing him off the side of a building, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's this uh, sense of it's mean, but it's uh, it, it's felt more. Your 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 stomach goes into a little bit more, a few more knots uh, than than the windy series managed to <laughs> ever managed to do. And Mantat's character, it, it feels like this extension from his character in a moment of romance. But that's not a bad thing because he's he's good at that lowly, hurting, easily manipulated character who also doesn't really know when to be quiet about uh, about things when things are going good he's, he externalizes it and that's not a good thing but um it, it's great to see him back in this fold after being labeled and, and greatly so as as uh you know the comedic sidekick to Stephen chow for so many years um and so, so it's great to see as uh, he snaps back into dramatic acting uh, uh, like you read about um uh, one thing I wanted to ask, and this is such a basic question, and maybe you know know this, maybe you don't. But uh, and I, I should use Google more than I uh, than I do. But uh, simply haven't looked this up. Portland Street is this simply a renowned triad area, high crime neighborhood, triad business area, or what do you think of uh, like uh, when people say Portland Street, like oh, don't go there when you are in Hong Kong? Or... Oh no, everybody goes there now. It's it's like. It's it's the street which is attached to a uh, Langham Place, like one of the biggest malls in in all of Hong Kong. In the '90s, though, before that place was built, it's um, you know it's basically in the in the Mong Kok area, and it was renowned, I guess, for being a, a bit of a red light district. Um, and I guess you can still find that kind of activity uh, thereabouts if you if you know where to look. Wasn't te- wasn't Temple Street uh, essentially a red light uh, district area too? Temple Street, yeah, uh, as well as as being an area where you would go out and, you know, find the fortune tellers and whatnot and the night market and stuff. But, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff, at least for my time in Hong Kong, a lot of these places, when when you say the word, like, red light district, you would think, you know, it's a place to be feared and shunned and stay away from there because it's a bad area. But not really in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong always had a way of kind of keeping these places out of the pr- direct purview of, you know, people walking down the street. And and again, I think we've talked about this, you know, over in Kowloon Tong, where you have uh, the, all these sort of famous international primary schools, 
nestled among them, you also have lots and lots of love motels, right? These, these sort of like overnight motels where people would go for various reasons. So it's it's like, you know, this society has emerged in, in such a way that these businesses, these industries could exist um, side by side with, you know, regular pedestrian areas and, and what today would be big mega malls. And, you know, it's none the worse for wear. It's it's not like, you know, in other areas where it just becomes renowned as a place of high crime and, and best be avoided. Yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. I never really lo- looked into it, even though these streets are almost always mentioned and uh like the chan honam became uh, the leader of uh what was it it's in Chatsoi or whatever in the first movie and uh, i don't know if that that areas in particular yeah. in particular like fear to go to or whatever I'll, I'll put it this way for for long time listeners you've heard me talk about the dynasty theater you, you know you'd go out portland street as one of the ways to get over to the dynasty theater so oh, right on right on <laughs> Uh, but no, no triads uh, running across you with uh, machetes uh, waving in the air. So, so yep, yep. Yeah. But, the, but the as, from what I'm from what I've been told, the triads run the dynasties. So. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there's a or it was uh, like a shop in the mall, like in Dubai or something, where they sell pirated VCDs. Uh, these triads, who knows? Anyway, let's move over to Chuchi a little bit. Okay, uh, I think she was on an acting and awards role here in the late nineties after breaking out of category three movies. Uh, uh, even though she won two acting awards for a category three movie, Viva Erotica. That's what that's rather nifty. You don't hear that in Hollywood that you can, w- as an actress, you can win two acting awards in the same night. But uh, seeing as Hong Kong has best new performer too, she managed to sna- uh, snag that and best supporting actress for Viva Erotica. But then she was nominated for Love Is Not a Game but a Joke. She got an award for this, and I mean, it's the heroin addict role. It's awards bait. But, you know, throughout the movie, Raymond Diep has navigated genre tropes fairly well, so it, it's easy to give her a chance, and as long as it's not overdone, and she's always like, I got the shakes bad, and I got, I'm going to do that kind of acting, I need a hit, as long as it isn't rampant. Uh, and and yes, she, she's a gorgeous woman, with, she's disheveled a little bit, because uh, she's a drug addict, but uh, I think the script argues fairly well that, uh, you know, she was a club girl once, and more glamorous once, and... Uh, she, uh, you know, various circumstances uh, made her take sort of a detour into drug addiction. You know, I, I, I have a nostalgia sort of feeling for how well she did as an actress. I, I, I've always been a fan of her. I know people think she's annoying. They don't like her voice. And maybe people who speak Cantonese think thinks that accent is uh, not good enough or simply annoying. I don't know. But... Uh, I, I, I think she's, uh, she's good in this role. She doesn't outshine Sandra. The... The only thing I was kind of, I think, uh, disappointed by is that it felt a bit short and limited and not as impactful as the rest of the film. But I was happy to see this as part of Shuchi's development. Um, and also her final scene, it's its one of the few scenes that looks a bit too hastily as uh, done and directed. You know, it's, it has violence. And considering how well they do violence otherwise in the film, I think this... Um, this scene uh, felt a little too soft uh, compared to the rest of the movie, but uh, otherwise I was happy to see it, but um, the memory of the movie is not necessarily just her and her big acting role. I think uh, she she is a supporting actress and she does well enough, but uh, I've seen her do a little bit better, but was happy to find, like, I, you know, as I was exploring Hong Kong movies, 
there's another Chu Chi movie, uh, another Chu Chi movie. Let's uh, do some research. She won an award for this as well. Fantastic. She was in Sex and Sand the year before. Sex and Sand 2. Awesome. And now she wins awards. That is awesome. And she's super cute. And uh, and I have no problems with that uh, cute demeanor and voice and all of that. So always uh, favorable impression. I've, I haven't uh, pursued her, you know, her more artistic work like Millennium Mambo because um, uh, I probably wouldn't understand it. It's not my type of movie, but uh, there you are. Have you seen The Assassin? Uh, no. It's the same director, so of course I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. Not for me. But uh, what, what was your impression of her? You know, because you, 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 even if you haven't seen Sex and Sand 2 or her other Category 3 movies, you, you know of that development, that she broke out of that and has become an acclaimed actress. And that was not a given path for, you know, actresses who did, uh, you know, porn movies, essentially. Hers is a success story that is... Uh nice to hear about you know somebody who was able to sort of get out of the sort of exploitation side of it and really make a name for herself to win awards and to go on to be not just a successful actress within the asian market but she's made some renown for herself overseas i think she was in the second transporter film first uh, was it the first yeah and and you know so she's um she's made been many recognizable i love hearing her in sync sound i wish more of her you know work was in sync sound so is that the thing uh, people are annoyed by that her because she she's uh, Taiwanese so maybe her Cantonese isn't perfect. Do you think people uh, that 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 great some people that the, her Cantonese isn't perfect? It must because I mean uh, I I do know a number of her films where they overdub her so um but then again they do that to other people like Louis Ku sometimes. So <laughs> what are you going to do? How dare I? <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, she's great. Um, her role here is small, but you know, it, it's, it's worthwhile and you, they do bring her back as a different character, as I said, later in the series. And she is somebody that I enjoy seeing on the screen. So, you know, I, much more so I would say than, um, the, the co sort of co-star of this film, Christy Young, who was kind of a hot hit girl in this era and getting quite a bit of work, and then I guess later on went to do more and more work up north, and we haven't seen a whole lot of, um, in at least in Hong Kong cinema, she's popped up here and there. In 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 as we get to the ending, which we obviously won't spoil, but uh, I I I wanted more. I think, uh, but it's a long movie already, so maybe they decided not to do this. But I wanted a little bit more about her transition from younger and then to try at Kingpin, I suppose. Uh, after she performed an assassination herself but uh, then again it's nitpicking because I, I don't think the quality drops and you you you're almost super delighted when he when, when the cameos continue to drop like it's it's stupid like I rag on him but literally when I was watching this hey Jerry Lamb is here that's awesome <laughs> that's Jason Hsu and even that's Ken Lowe I've just seen him in this universe it's cool all of a sudden that there's like little paths to different movies and you can connect it and shit like that. So it's audience pleasing, of course, like uh, bring back the cameos that people will recognize. But it, it, I, I found it delightful. And um, then when they come back to some more Vincent and Sandra development, uh, it's, I suppose, the only other disappointment that we didn't get another movie with them or more with them because they have such great chemistry and uh, that unspoken bond is uh, continues to be enjoyable and uh, it's not wasted opportunity though i think they, they get a lot of nuance 
between them that makes you curious, even though, though their relationship doesn't answer all your questions necessarily. But they, they really make the most with, with them. And, uh, you know, he, he he's a solid actor, obviously, depend, for every actor, it depends on the material. But uh, he's he really comes off as pure comfort and understand he's he understands his role and understands his dynamic with sandra and they they riff well with each other again that scene towards the end where he gives her a certain gift that would be mistaken for something else you know and they he plays that off and i i think that's rather cute and um their their their, their characters are a, a vital and memorable part of um of uh, this one uh so before i finish my notes i might as well throw over to you if you want to mention anything else uh towards the second half of the film as the movie goes back to uh, present day i suppose no i mean as i said it's um you know it's got it's got this good dual storytelling which i think works well i'm typically somebody who does not like prequels um per se but i think the way that this is using the narrative and and reintroducing characters that we know is masterfully done i mean it's just it's just it was a even though the subject matter can be hard at times, and, and like you said, there is a high degree of violence, it was just enjoyable to watch. So it was, you know, it was a fun revisit. I do know that the character, I think she appears in in most of the remaining films, at least going forward. I just don't remember if her role is super significant. So it's going to be interesting to, to go back and revisit those. Yeah, I think so. Because um, she and obviously Vincent, they... They've established something here that is very likable, even if Andrew Lau shows no interest in adding to it uh, through Young and Dangerous Five or Six. You know, I, I I mentioned that it's it's not an original conclusion to the story, but it's not terrible. Terrible, obviously. It, um, it just feels like it's yeah, it's tried stuff, um, but they have established character connections and emotions run high because these character connections are going to change uh, change a bit more permanently i suppose and uh, so even if it feels stock it's way way more affecting and uh, even um, shocking to a degree in terms of what violence needs to be put on screen and in these people's lives uh, even you know there's some even some quick shocking violence here that is definitely not half-hearted uh, and I'm not even talking about like the main stuff that happens, but at one point, like fo- followers of uh, a particular gang just throws themselves in front of uh, like a machete or a bullet, and uh, that devotion is like whoa, you know, it's very sudden, and uh, that, that's also well conveyed. And uh, even though it's uh, a spoiler, so I might cut this out, but I even had this reaction: "Look at that, it's Egan, <laughs> ah, John Nam." <laughs> and I had no, and then you know we talked about Young and Dangerous and Chan Ho Nam. And really, interest level is not great for his character, but it's it's been that kind of movie, Paul, where the cameos, they're not cheap sort of, um, like, hey, for us, and uh, no thought behind it as such. It's, they, they, they make it a sort of semi-joyous thing that they, they bring back characters and establish that this is how they're connected. And at the end, the Young and Dangerous crew uh, turns up, and I... I think that's nice. I really, I, I did become happy. Uh, maybe it's merely looking at the actor in this case. Ah, look at that, Ikim. I like him. I've done a series <laughs> on him, and I've liked him. So, 
so there's no indifference looking at that cameo. Um, so no Taifei as far as I remember. So, but that's uh, that's about it. Uh, so um, that's the end of my notes. So uh, anything else uh, you want to mention? Uh, no, like, but as I said, if you, this is a series that has uh, completely been off your radar up to this point and you just don't have any interest in the Hung Hing boys themselves, you know, do give this one a shot because it is worth your time. I, I, I maybe should have uh, answered that, but um, asked that rather that, but how, you know, the, the plot strands and the type of um, confrontations we do get towards the end that feel genre familiar, did that ever spring to mind that oh yeah i've sort of seen this before but the characters are engaging so it's okay that it's a little bit familiar or it didn't cross your mind that this was slightly tropey yeah no it it is tropey in parts i mean if you've seen any of this genre at all extensively you're gonna see you know recognizable characters people treating each other badly um even the even the little um uh, date and ditch routine that the two girls do I'm sure I've seen that somewhere in, in some other PR girls movie because it's a common trope and, and something that probably has actually happened to people. I mean, I've re- I know I've read news stories of even currently where um, people have uh, picked up girls in, in, in bars in Wan Chai and they've had their drink spiked and they wake up the next day with their wallet missing. You know, that's something that actually happens. So I'm sure that, you know, this is their they're they're basing some of uh some of these uh, shenanigans off of stories that actually happened yeah so yes that's it for portland street blues as for availability we watched the old universe dvd of the film and this has seemingly not been reissued and is certainly not in print anymore again another crime i mean i just read they're doing a blu-ray release of pink bomb i mean come on people (laughs) come on yeah, that's that one was a bit random. Uh, you 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 were hoping that uh, there would be like an HD master somewhere on some shelf somewhere, and people would randomly sort of like swipe up Portland Street Blues in that regard. I mean, but but but, but even the series as such, Young and Dangerous, it's not been reissued. Uh, Young and Dangerous free for whatever random reason, because it might lie with another company that was reissued on DVD and Blu-ray, I think. But um, I mean, there should be there should be there should be like a a database out there when I, I know this isn't how it works. This is just a dream world, but come on. I mean, award-winning film or award-nominated film should be in the Blu-ray queue before a pink bomb. Okay. Come on. I mean, it's, just... it's not uh, the most memorable Lao Ching Wan movie. It's like an early movie by that director, Derek Chu, who turned out to be a fairly quirky director. He did comeuppance and seal with a kiss with Louis Koo. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not bombing on Pink Bomb. I yes, mean, you I, are. I enjoy, I, mean, I enjoy a romantic comedy, silly fel, fel, film fest. It as wasn't much as good. It wasn't good. So uh, yeah, at least we got Men Behind the Sun two and three on Blu-ray mm. right now. So at least there's that. <laughs> Just waiting for one, I suppose. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Portland Street Blues isn't that Young and Dangerous twelve DVD bootleg set I talked of before. But if they used uh, this transfer, um, I, I can't say and. Uh, uh, second-hand prices uh, for Portland Street Blues on, for instance, the Amazon Marketplace. They're a bit too outrageous currently for the original DVD. I saw prices ranging from 30 US dollars to 70. And uh, even more outrageous prices on the UK Amazon Marketplace. And the listings on eBay tends to be expensive too. So there, there is that. I was curious, but we obviously have nothing to compare with. Um, the poster shows this was rated Category 2B. But the DVD was definitely category three that's either 
a mix-up by Universe who did the DVD, or it actually had some longer stuff on on, on the DVD because we certainly get some uh, extended violence, you know, uh, not just one or two beatings on hands and heads, but multiple ones. So maybe maybe they reinstated some stuff for for video. Uh, I didn't get the impression that it ha- had a lot of uh, crude language or anything. Even in Category Three movie, they would bleep crude languages. Uh, so. Um, I don't know, but uh, it didn't necessarily feel like, oh yeah, it's a category free movie. I better watch this in my closet uh, type of movie. It didn't feel like that movie um, for you, right? No, not at all. So um, who knows? But uh, to, because even the Young and Dangerous movies, they weren't category free automatically just because of the trite content. Uh, they, they probably all resided at 2B or um, category 2. So um, who knows? But uh, regardless, it's um, it's out there and I hope you can uh, get it at a cheaper price than it's um, currently at. But that is us, uh, regardless of, like, did you ever see, I know you've seen Legendary Typhoon because we mention it like every five minutes, we might as well watch it at some point. But uh, I remember the, the other Raymond Yip movie, his chicken spin-off, uh, those were the days. I remember that got a good review on Love HK film, and uh, so it, it's motivation enough for me to pursue that. But but did you ever see that uh, chicken spin-off uh, film? Yeah, um, I, I've seen all the films, the prequels, um, the spin-offs. I just don't recall that one being very very interesting. I think there's a bit of retconning with a, a few plot threads, that, if I recall correctly. But um, it, yeah, it was just not. For me, once Portland Street came out, everything subsequent this film just kind of felt felt like a bit of a downer. In in the case of um, the Young and Dangerous prequel, and um, those were the days, not entirely necessary and and just not quite as engaging. Not that they're bad films, and again, I don't really remember uh, much from them, so it'll be interesting to revisit them. But this film, I remembered, I remembered loving it, and I just you know was excited to go back into it uh, another time. So it left that kind of an impression, whereas the other films, the later films, don't. I do remember, I, I don't remember, it's Born to be King or Young and Dangerous 5, where they kind of get back into Taiwan politics a little bit and thinking, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of dull and just not feeling a need to go back that far. But we'll get there. Leave it to Johnny Toe to do a triad in politics and, uh, <laughs> and violence and things, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 simply curious where that fits in those weather days. If it's goes back to, or if it's a story that takes place, you know, between four and six, and he does something outside of the his regular regular world. But then again, he becomes a branch leader in four, so he has no time to go other places, I suppose. Um, unless he does a crime in five and needs to hide so it takes place between five and six i don't know but uh i'm, I'm curious enough so we'll see what happens uh, anyway let's uh, finish this one off uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs go to podcastonfire.com where all relevant links social media links and all that good stuff will be accessible to you in the, the post i'll create for this show so uh, i'll leave it to you to do a little plug for your mighty uh, podcast archive and thank you for uh, helping me um, expand this uh, coverage uh, into uh, spin-off territory. And uh, if we uh, spread them out enough, maybe we have uh, the stamina to conclude the main series now that we're over halfway there. I mean, technically, I suppose one should do the prequel too. But, you know, the main series, uh, the sort of chronological main series is six movies. And then prequel is the 
quote-unquote seventh. Um, you know, in your world, would that be Young and Dangerous Seven, or is the prequel, uh, you know, akin to? W- would you categorize that as a as a spin-off uh, a la Portland Street Blues? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I don't remember enough of it to really think clearly on on how the how we'd categorize that. But we'll have to revisit it and see. Um, and of course, the capstone, Young and Dangerous Reloaded. You know, why, why not? I haven't seen it. So I, I can't judge it. I know it's. A, I know it was a smaller movie, but yeah. uh, I, I like that director's movie Triad enough. Uh, his, his movie that was literally that was literally called Triad. I thought that was okay. So why not, uh, Daniel Chan? So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, plug away your podcast archive that uh, might feature a review of that Reloaded movie somewhere in the archive. Yeah, somewhere in there you will find it over at uh, Concast.com. The show is the East Screen. West Green podcast, so uh, a bit dated now, but give it a listen. And uh, visit the uh, Hollywood on Hong Kong sub-series that uh, Paul put together that he graciously asked me to guest on, where we watched uh, a bunch of uh, classic uh, movies uh, set in and around uh, in and around Hong Kong and all of that. So, because I, I was reminded of, oddly enough, when I watched Enter the Dragon recently, I was reminded of uh, that series because uh, a particular section takes place in, in, in the harbor. Uh, Aberdeen Harbor, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and Bruce is sitting on the boat and uh, John Saxon is on the boat and Jim Kelly and all of that and they have their backstories, but they're on the boat for, a, for 10 minutes or so. And it just reminded me of that, that so many movies in that series uh, captured the, the harbor in various ways. It's uh, just a given that you're going to do Something there, including falling into that uh, nasty, disgusting <laughs> water <laughs> and all of that. So, uh, so it uh, was a little reminder that hey, I like that series. So, uh, uh, but at any rate, I've been kind of being away from you was Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. So, say goodbye in your best uh, and sing your best uh, rendition of the theme song of Young and Dangerous. Go! I'll spare you guys that. I'll just say Sister Thirteen forever. Yes, sir. And Ben Hunt forever, I suppose. <laughs>